I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, it is time to talk a name you don't know, but you probably should. One of the most, well, most famous names of the Reformation that nobody knows. So let's have some fun. We are in 16th century Europe. And the reason I say Europe is because this dude had a little Johnny Cash in him. He was a little bit of everywhere. So at the time of this of this event, the Reformation is in full swing. I mean full swing. You've got the Episcopalian Church giving birth in England. You have Lutheranism spreading throughout Germany. You have what will later really become Presbyterianism coming out of Switzerland and coming out of France. The Reformation may be young, but it is rolling along. However, we have an issue, though. There are two streams of the Protestant Reformation at work by the mid, and I'm serious about this, by the mid-1520s. So if you give, excuse me, if you give the Reformation an official starting date, and like you had to do it gun to your head, traditionally we give it October 31st of 1517, because that's when Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door at the, um, at the church door at the Wittenberg uh, castle there. So, that's your official kickoff. Realize we don't make it a decade before we have two, not independent, but two jockeying streams within the Reformation. Now, the first one is what you think of when you think of the Protestant Reformation. That is the magisterial Reformation led by the magisterial reformers. So that's Luther and Melanchthon. That's Zwingli and then Bucer and later Bullinger and Calvin. This is William Farrell. This is Thomas Cranmer. All this is the Magisterial Reformation. This is a mixing of the church and the state. Remember, we've talked about this, that as the Middle Ages are birthed, you have this joining of sacred and secular power. That has been a thing at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation for over a millennia. To think of a world outside of influence from church and state going back and forth and each having a foot in the other is to think of a world that no one even imagines or can possibly contemplate. And that has been true for over a thousand years. So outside a handful of the reformers, that's the way this works. It's magisterial in nature. You're, of course, going to be compelled to join the church in that city because that's what we do because this is not this is no longer Catholic because that's heresy. This is still, though, a Christian nation, a Christian city, a Christian county, things like that. Now, outside of the Magisterial Reformation, you have the Radical Reformation. This is a rejection of secular authority. The most famous group are the Anabaptists, and they will eventually give birth to uh, modern-day Amish, modern-day Mennonites, as well as Puritanism. Now, 
the Anabaptists don't, but the radical side of the Reformation does give birth to Puritanism. Puritanism. The Puritans were very keen to make sure they were distinguished from Anabaptists even after they came to believe in believers' baptism. So, who are we talking about? Because some of you are probably looking at the name on the episode and going, I don't even know who that is. Balthazar Hubmeier. Hubmeier, you can say it however you want. It depends on how much German you want to put in there. And he is German. He is an interesting character, to say the least. He was originally a student of, if you bring it in English, it's John Eck, but we've mentioned before, Johann von Eck, who was the debater against Martin Luther. He is the main professor for Hubmeier. Now, later on, Hubmeier, as he's traveling around, will run into Erasmus and be influenced by Erasmus, and he will run into Zwingli and be uh, influenced by Zwingli, even participates in some disputations with Zwingli, not against, but with. Now, there's another neat little fact. The reason why I say everybody should know this name, at one point during the Counter-Reformation, when they had their list of banned authors, number one on the list was Martin Luther. Number two on the list was John Calvin. Number three on the list was Balthazar Hubmeier. He was kind of a big deal. He was one of the best thinkers amongst the Anabaptists, really their only their only true schoolman theologian. And, of course, the downside of the Anabaptists is that none of them lived long at all. I mean, none of them. Now, some of that is self-inflicted and well-deserved, and some of that is just, you know, part of the world they lived in. So, the theology of Senor Hubmeier. Well, he upheld the Trinity. That was important. Some of the more radical versions of the Anabaptist movement did not. And if you want to talk about radical Anabaptism, by the way, go look up what happened in Munster. Just have some fun and go look up what happened in Munster, and you will realize why they were treated the way that they were. There were streams of the Radical Reformation that were, in fact, very, very, very radical. So Hubmeyer uh, upheld the Trinity. He actually upheld obedience to the government as long as—because the government was a legitimate organization, as long as the government's not asking you to sin, obviously. Now, he's also not a pacifist, so if the government dictated that you should take up arms and the cause was just, then Hubmeyer thought the Christians should take up arms. That is very, very not Anabaptists, who are typically pacifists in nature. He comes to hold to believers' baptism. This is in rejection of the covenantal theology in which baptism replaces circumcision, which is what you will see in Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, which is Episcopalianism, and later even on to Methodism. So, the uh, and the Anabaptist position on believers' baptism is unique at this point, and amongst Christianity even to this day, that's kind of the evangelical position, but the number of denominations that hold to something different makes that a unique position as well. <coughs> the other thing was Hubmeyer held to the common language. He has a doctorate. He is well-versed and learned, and yet he writes, speaks, preaches, converses, does everything in basically German. Because it's important. Why? Because nobody reads Latin outside of the academics, and nobody listens to Latin and understands it outside of a couple of academics. So if you actually want people to understand what you're preaching to them out of the scriptures, you should do it in a language they understand. So he spoke in German. As far as foundations, this is a great quote. This is Hubmeier himself. In all disputes concerning faith and religion, the scriptures alone proceeding from the mouth of God ought to be our level and rule. In other words, you better have a Bible verse. You better have a Bible verse. Now, the problem with all of that, 
All of that is fine, except for that tension between the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation, and that basically hinges on baptism. To reject infant baptism, covenantal baptism, would be to undo the merging of the church and the state, because if you're no longer baptized into the church as a child, then you are free to not join the state church at some point, and that is a freedom that medieval Europe has no concept of or ability to allow, and there's no willingness for it either. So, uh, Hubmeyer ends up running afoul of Prince Ferdinand in Austria, which is kind of a problem for him because Ferdinand is going to eventually become the ruler of Austria, and that's going to become a problem because we're using the term Austria a little bit anachronistically. The ruler that Ferdinand becomes in the region that he becomes ruler over is, over is known as the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. They don't like the Zwinglians. They don't like the Lutherans. They sure as shooting don't like Anabaptists. So... Hubmeyer flees. He ends up in Zurich with Zwingli. Zwingli has him arrested. And by the way, when we say arrested and questioned back then, it's not like they grabbed you, stuck you in a room with a swinging light bulb and asked you some questions. They were typically like torturing you during the questioning to try to get you to give them the answer they wanted. They want Hubmeyer to recant his believer's baptism position. He refuses. They beat him some more, he agrees, and then when it's time to do the deed in the church the next day, he can't do it. So they stick him back in the torture rack where he recants, and then they kick him out of Zurich and allow him to leave Switzerland. So Zwingli travels to Moravia, so that is modern-day Czech Republic. At the time, it was Bohemian territory, it was free territory. Unfortunately, while there... Bohemia comes under Austrian power, and our buddy Ferdinand is back in charge. So, since Ferdinand now has open access to him, and Hubmeyer is unwilling to recant his baptism a second time, they round him up and drag him back to Austria for trial. And again, by trial, I mean like putting him on the rack, beating him, starving him, you know, stuff like that. On March the 10th, 1528, Balthazar Hubmeyer is burned at the stake as a heretic. Three days later, they take his wife, tie a stone around her neck, and throw her off a bridge into the Danube River to be drowned. Thus ends the ministry of Balthazar Hubmeyer. Now, why do we care? Well, we care because this is what happens and why the tension with the church and state is so important. This is what happens when both forget their lane. And this is the world where you can sit there and go, we agree with this man on every aspect of theology except for he doesn't demand that we bring the children and make them members of the church automatically. This should actually be a simple thing. And for you, it is a simple thing because you live in a world where there's liberty and conscience and things like that. But realize that the powers that be in the world and the powers that be are, are, are capable and willing to abuse Christianity and the church in ways that we just don't think about. And that has been the true history of God's people. However, in the midst of that history, the truth hasn't been lost. The hope of the people has not been put in the wrong place. There is still a shining light and a comfort from the Holy Spirit that strengthens his people and brings them unto a good end. And there is some ugliness in our history, but there is also some beautiful working of God and a recognition that no matter what befalls us, he will see us through. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.